Well, here in First Timothy 6, we've got Paul wrapping up his first letter to Timothy, specifically talking about wealth and the danger of wealth. And I suppose because Timothy was relatively young when he wrote this, uh, he realized that there was, in, I think, younger people, a great uh, desire to, to amass wealth, to, to dream about getting it, etc., and to think that that is the answer to all life's problems and uh, the way to the good life. And it will be true to say that probably a desire for wealth has been the, the spiritual undoing of more people, of more brothers and sisters in Christ than any other issue. It's not so much that people are of themselves uh, wealthy, but that they desire to be rich. That is, that is the problem. Now, there in verse 7 and 8, you've got some pretty profound words. We've brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. So having food and raiment, let us be there with content. Because, verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Now this idea that we brought nothing into this world, we were born naked, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. This is quoting from Job, when he says in Job 1.21, and he's quoting from the Septuagint, um, that we entered this world naked and we returned naked. And so he's saying that we are really in the position of Job. And yet Job was rich, and, but he lost it all. And yet Paul is using that to exhort Timothy, who was young and not yet rich, but who was maybe tempted to think about uh, trying to get wealthy. And he's saying, no, 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 we're all like Job, who lost all that wealth. But we think, but I didn't lose that wealth because I've never been really wealthy. And yet, thinking this through, I think what he's saying is that the desire to be rich is what has got to be uh, dropped, given away, uh, quit. It's that desire for wealth which is what we've got to got to give up. And that, I think opens up to me uh, an otherwise difficult passage where Paul elsewhere says about the Lord Jesus that he who was rich became poor for our sakes and yet he was never physically uh, materially wealthy and if you say ah yeah it's talking about spiritual wealth well in what sense did Jesus become spiritually poor for our sakes was he not even at the time of his death crowned in glory and spiritual honor uh, as the ultimately spiritually wealthy person. Is that not the case? So in what sense then was he rich and yet he became poor? And also, why would Paul quote that or say that, and he says it to the Corinthians, he says it in the context of appealing for material generosity and not trying to be wealthy. And in that context, he says, Jesus was rich, but he became poor for our sakes. And so you also ought to be generous to others and not materialistic. So he does seem to have material wealth and material riches in mind. So in what sense, then, was the Lord Jesus rich and became poor? Well, as I say, I don't think he was ever physically, materially, actually wealthy. But he gave up any desire to be wealthy. And I think that one of the wilderness temptations, at least, was getting at that, where he he sees all the glory of this world, and he could have it, but he says no. And I think in that sense, he who was rich became poor in the sense that he gave up any desire, any pretension to accumulate personal wealth. 
And so this is what I think Paul is getting at by applying words about Job entering this world naked and returning naked uh, to us and saying, look, Job is every man. Job is each of us. Even though we were not literally wealthy, and yet what he's saying is that we uh, should give up all desire for wealth. Now, go on in verse 9, 1 Timothy 6, 9. They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. They that will be rich. And here you're right up against the essential problem. A desire for wealth. And how many times have we come across this? People who say, oh yeah, I'm just going to build up my business, I'm going to get wealthy, and then I'll be able to serve God. And this is utter nonsense. God doesn't need money. Whatever makes anyone think that God needs money. And if he does, why does that, do you think, involve you personally becoming rich and wealthy? That sounds rather convenient to me. That you personally have got to become rich and wealthy so that God's work can go ahead. And you've therefore, you're going to not have time to read the Bible daily. You're going to have, not have time to uh, serve God and, and help his people uh, because you're busy doing your exams and building up your business and your career and all the rest of it. So that at some future point you reckon you can serve God. Believe me, th this is a, a absolute nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. Carpe diem. We are to seize the moment right now to serve God. And the, the whole imperative of the death of Jesus for me means that I respond now. That's how it has to be for every man and woman. Not, I will respond later. You are assuming, anyway, when you say that, you're assuming that you're going to have life to continue. And you don't know that at all, that uh, your life is going to go on, because we, we know not what's going to happen. And so, he, he says there that those who want to be rich... Um, are choked by their desire for riches. And I have said very often that Paul is continually alluding to the, the Gospels and his teaching. And I've suggested that once every three verses, at least in his writing, you can discern an allusion to the Gospels. And if you look at my book on uh, Paul and uh, Christ, you'll, you'll see, uh, I've sort of played with some statistics here, and you see that putting all the illusions uh, down on paper, you can discern certain patterns. And one of the patterns is that Paul had a preference for the parables. And he really liked to allude to the Lord's parables. And here I think he's alluding, and you can scribble this if you like in your margin, by verse 9 there, to Matthew 13, verse 22, which is from the parable of the sower which says that riches choke a man's response to the word. It's uh, that the word of the gospel is sown, but riches come along and stop that word uh, growing uh, and bringing forth fruit in that person's life. Now, here Paul says something different, slightly different, and it just shows how much he had thought and meditated on the parables, on the teaching of Jesus. Here he says that those who will be rich, those who want to be rich, are the ones who are choked by their desire for wealth. Now the parable in Matthew 13:22 just says that it's riches that chokes the word. But here he says it's actually the desire 
for wealth. Of course, physical riches, a lump of gold, a large bank account of itself is, is nothing. It is the desire for that wealth which is what will choke the growth of God's word. Now, I think there may also be uh, another allusion that Paul is, is making uh, back to Matthew 19, verse 23. Matthew 19, 23, when he says, A rich man will hardly enter into the kingdom. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. But here he, he's saying that um, it, it's very difficult for those who will be rich. So again he's interpreting the, the rich man as actually one who wants to be rich. Now this opens up so many Bible verses because we who are not uh, mega wealthy can read all these verses and say, yeah, this is about the wealthy, this is about Bill Gates or whoever it might be, that this is not about me. But yes, it is. Because if you see what I'm saying, Paul is showing us that the Bible uh, teaching in Job, for example, or in the parable of the sower about riches and wealth and rich people is actually talking about a desire to be rich. And so no longer can any of us put a red line through the Bible's uh, verses and, and teachings about rich people by saying, ah, yeah, that's nothing to do with me. It is because it's actually talking, Paul is saying, about those who wish to be wealthy. Now, twice in 1 Timothy, Paul talks about a snare. He talks in 1 Timothy 3.7 about the snare of the devil, and here in chapter 6, verse 9, about the snare of wanting wealth. So, the devil, I understand that to uh, refer basically to sin and our sinful desires within us, the great enemy, the great adversary which we have spiritually. So the desire for wealth, in whatever form, is the very epitome of the devil. And really, when it comes to desire for wealth, you really see who people are. You, you really do. That, that is really the indicator, I think, of a person's spirituality. And it's so interesting, I, I find, psychologically, how many people will say, oh, I'm really not materialistic. I may have weaknesses, but I'm just not materialistic. I don't want to be wealthy. No, I'm not like that. You know, whenever somebody, or us, not just somebody, but any of us, uh, insists that we absolutely don't have a problem with something, that's when we do very often, not always, but very often that is the case. That repeated confidence that that particular temptation will not touch me, in its essence, maybe not in, in the specific form that we're talking about it in the conversation, but in its essence, probably it is a problem for us. And I do not know anyone who has not at some point in their life or is not in an ongoing sense uh, tempted by the desire for wealth. If only we had this, if only that. Now, the idea of the snare is that it results in a sudden and unexpected destruction. 
And that fits in with the Jesus parable about the rich fool who builds up all his wealth, etc. And then suddenly his soul is required of him and he dies. The guy who, you know, thinks, well, I'm going to get all wealthy and then I'm going to go and uh, go out into the mission field and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Suddenly, bang, you had a heart attack and that's the end of you. And you didn't do what you half-heartedly said you wanted to do. Um, the, the whole idea of running after wealth is that suddenly, unexpectedly, like a snare closing, like a trap closing on an animal, that's it. Too late, my friend. And I can only urge us, again, I say this, in the spirit of the cross, sitting here before the crucified Jesus, that we are to respond to him here and now. Not thinking that if only I could be wealthy, then this, that, and the other. I, I said earlier that God doesn't need money, and, and of course that is the case, but it is also the case that here as things work out in this world, we need you know, clothing. You say God doesn't need clothing, sure, but we all have to wear something. The point uh, I'm making is that God will provide. God will provide to each of us, and I have never seen at the end, ultimately, any preaching initiative, any welfare work, any, any genuinely thought out plan to serve God, I've never seen it fail for lack of money. There's times when I, I wouldn't have been able to say that because it seemed that something had failed for lack of money. Uh, but looking back over the years, I think it failed, those things failed for other reasons than simple lack of cash. Just, uh, just bear that in mind. Now, that's what's going to happen. If we, if we uh, want to be rich suddenly, and it will be sudden and unexpected, everything's going to go belly up in our spiritual lives. Now, the idea of, be, of riches being a snare connects with a lot of references in the Old Testament to snares, and the snare... Uh, that's spoken about in the Old Testament are the idols and you read through the whole Old Testament the historical books and the prophets they're on and on to Israel about you and your idols that's your unfaithfulness to God they're your snares and uh, we who do not worship bits of wood and stone have to realize that of course we can have our idols and what is our snare it is the desire for wealth that's what Paul is saying here and in that sense the whole of the Old Testament then suddenly opens up that we are not any better than Israel and all those repeated pleadings with them to worship God and him alone and to trust in him and him alone and not in any idols it suddenly starts to speak to us about uh, about wealth and the desire for wealth now he says there that the person who wants to be rich, verse 10 and who loves money it's like uh, verse 9, they who will be rich those who want to be rich, verse 10 the love of money, those who want all this money um, they are from the faith and pierce themselves through with many sorrows now that Greek word translated to pierce themselves through is related to the verb that's translated to crucify so he's really saying that these people who want to be rich who love money they want uh, effectively to
to crucify themselves with all the grief that that's going to bring to them. And yet we are asked to crucify ourselves for the sake of Jesus. And so you see a a tremendous logic appearing, as you often do, uh, that really it's, it's a cross on a cross. As Paul says in Romans 6 about baptism, it's slavery or slavery. You want to be a slave of God or a slave of of yourself and the slave of sin that way you're going to die be a slave of God and of Jesus that way ultimately you will paradoxically enough come to freedom and so this is it a cross or a cross and when he talks about piercing ourselves through with sorrow that is a direct quote from the Septuagint of 1 Kings 21-27 where Ahab uh, the Septuagint says, was pierced with sorrow as a result of coveting Naboth's vineyard. If you love money, you love wealth, you love possessions, I so want that, I would love to have that, you are piercing yourselves through just like Ahab did. And instead, go the other way. Do it for Jesus in response to his death for you. And again, you notice how he says that it is the root of all evil, not money itself, but the love of it. And we said earlier that Paul uses the idea of a snare twice in 1 Timothy, the snare of the devil and the snare of the desire for wealth. Uh, And I suggested that our attitude to wealth is really the, the very epitome, really, of where we stand spiritually. And the desire for wealth is really the very epitome of sin in the devil, or however you want to look at it. Or as he says here, it is the root of all evil. When you look at um, why people end up in jail and murders and all this kind of stuff that go on, so often somewhere featuring in, in the bad behavior that's happened has been a desire for money, a desire for wealth somewhere down the line and it's created knock-on problems which have resulted in, in, in problems that have, people have tried to resolve by very bad behaviour etc. And so verse 17 charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded this is the problem with wealth that it makes people arrogant this is the danger of it and God wants us to be humble And you wonder why the majority of Christ's brethren are not wealthy. Well, it's because there's a tendency to not trust in God and to be arrogant. Nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So God is rich to us, to every single one of us. And let us not think that because we are not one of that minority in the brotherhood who are wealthy, that therefore we have been given nothing. God has richly given us all things. His generosity to us is a a major theme throughout the Bible. You see this in the Psalms in particular, that that David can thank God for for a a million things that God gives us every day. Jeremiah and his uh, moment of depression, that he could thank God that his mercies are made new every morning. And Paul says that uh, all things are in fact ours, 
this whole creation is here for us, ultimately. So then, we have been given a lot, and the fact that we may not have financial wealth, let that not lead us to think that we therefore have been given nothing. We have been given a huge amount. And I, I must say, in the context of Western audience, that when we read there, verse 17, charge them that are rich in this world, well, if you take the world in the wider sense, with uh, a billion people out of the seven billion here on this planet, uh, I wouldn't say starving to death, but certainly uh, not having enough to eat every day, and large numbers of people going cold in the uh, Eastern Europe and large numbers of people in other countries, also um, in Africa and Asia with no shade over their head, at the other extreme, um, you know, there's a huge amount of total poverty in this world. And many of you listening to this are not that desperate. So, you know, this charge to those of us who in that sense are rich in this world, let's just not compared ourselves within the framework of our societies in which we live, but on a global scale, we are the rich in this world. And he says that um, by, by being generous, and that can be in all sorts of ways, to do good, verse 18, to be rich in good works, ready to distribute, in other words, having a, a yes attitude rather than a, a scepticism, which I, I think inevitably, uh, on a human level, tends to arise when uh, rich people encounter poverty, uh, there is not a readiness to distribute because we are cynical. That, that is the cynicism that comes again with wealth. Um, willing to, to share, willing to communicate, willing, willing to share. Again, he's talking there more about attitudes than about saying, you must give away all your wealth. I don't think he's saying, give away all your wealth. I think when Jesus said that to the rich young man, it was almost tongue-in-cheek, and I don't see that that was, in fact, a, a global, as it were, requirement for every Christian believer to give away all that they own. I, I don't think that was followed either in the example of uh, New Testament Christianity. Anyway... Um, my point is, ready to distribute, willing to share. He's talking about having an open attitude, a yes attitude, rather than actually saying, you've got to give your wealth away. He's not saying that. He's talking about attitudes. And by doing that, and of course, by being rich in good works, uh, and incidentally, he doesn't say to these rich people, yeah, just give your wealth away. He says, be rich in good works. And there's a slight difference. That they should actually do something for others rather than just uh, giving money. But do something for others. Uh, be rich in good works. And that, verse 19, lays up in store a good foundation against the time to come. That they may lay hold on, uh, on eternal life. And so... Our attitude to wealth, whatever level of it we have, is related to how we will eternally live and be. It is related to the foundation that we are establishing forever and ever. And that's an amazing thought, that how we behave today 
is in fact related to who we will eternally be by generosity now that is part of the foundation which we will eternally have in God's kingdom and incidentally in that context I find verse um, I, I, I find his um, <coughs> teaching elsewhere significant where Paul says that our whole soul and spirit will be saved you got that at the end of First uh, Thessalonians 5 it's as if who we are now is in a sense who we will eternally be and so if now you have that attitude of generosity then that is a foundation for the eternity which is ahead not that you will get into the kingdom on the basis of your money or your checkbook not at all nor on the basis of good works we know that it's by grace but what I think he's saying is that who we will eternally be is related to the kind of outgiving generosity we have had in this life and of course that is ultimately true of the Lord Jesus that he is the same yesterday today and forever the little the, the, the Jesus who loved little children will be the same one who judges us he's the same one who died on the cross he is the same who rose from the dead he is the same one into whose eyes one day soon we also read